Jude. And look with me, please, in verse 3. Jude writes, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And so we are going to this evening look further into this portion of our text in Jude, of our study in Jude, and I want to bring to mind um, your attention back to things that we've already looked into over the past couple of weeks that we began our study of this epistle of Jude. It was just, as I mentioned two weeks ago, that we began this study in which I provided for you an overview of this epistle. And then last week we began our study into this epistle by examining the first two verses of Jude, which include the introduction itself. In Jude verses 1 and 2 we read, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. So I pointed out last week that there are three elements to Jude's introduction of this epistle. The introduction of the writer, the introduction of the audience, and then the introductory greeting. And the introduction of the writer of the epistle begins in verse 1 when he says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And as we mentioned in our overview and again in our introduction last week, Jude did not emphasize the relationship that he had with Jesus as his half-brother but believed it more important to identify as the servant of Jesus Christ. And we have seen where Scripture shows us clearly that Jude or Judas, which is Jude, was the brother of James, and here he he identifies as the brother of James. And James, of course, and Judas were half-brothers of our Lord Jesus Christ, as the Gospels explain to us. And yet, Jude does not claim his brotherhood to Jesus in a physical sense or realm, but rather emphasizes the significance of being a servant of Jesus Christ. And so we, we glean from this just briefly that to be a servant of our Lord Jesus as a spiritual brother is greater than claim to being part of the earthly family of the Lord Jesus. And again, this is so uh, clearly exemplified with the Jews themselves. Because remember, the Jews were claiming that they were of God, and yet all the while rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very Son of God, or God in the flesh. And so they, they were claiming this kinship to Abraham. They were claiming that they had, some, uh, they had some part with God because of Abraham, and yet totally neglected uh, and totally rejected uh, the very provision of God for them, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Jude says, I'm the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. So we have an identity of who this is, but he is not emphasizing being the half-brother of Jesus, but rather his servant. Then the introduction of the audience to which the epistle was written, Jude verse 1 continues, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. So Jude identified his audience by three distinct conditions. First, they were sanctified by God. Sanctification is a positional truth which is manifested in a very practical manner. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, we've dealt with these verses. Second, they were preserved in Jesus Christ. Jude further emphasized this truth in the concluding statements of this epistle when he says in verse 24, 
Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Here Jude is saying that it is Christ, it is God the Father and in, in Jesus Christ that is able to keep them from falling, able to present them faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And he begins this epistle by stating that very truth when he said preserved in Jesus Christ. Then third, they were called by God. If one is sanctified by God, he is also preserved in Jesus Christ and called by God to live in the truth and glory of this redemptive work in Christ. And then third, we saw the introductory, or see the introductory greeting in verse 2. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. So several things are mentioned here. First, mercy be multiplied unto you, Jude said. And while mercy is only extended because of grace, God's goodness or kindness given to those who are undeserving. Mercy is truly a counterpart to grace. And we we looked into that somewhat last week. Grace is getting what I don't deserve, such as mercy. I don't deserve mercy, yet because of grace I receive mercy. While mercy is not getting what I do deserve because of grace. So because God has given me what I don't deserve, which is grace, such as mercy, he also is not giving me what I do deserve, which is mercy, which is received because of grace. So these are counterparts, one to the other. They, they are inseparable. And grace and mercy being inseparably linked, we were reminded of this in Psalm 23, 6, when David wrote, Surely goodness, which is grace, and mercy together shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Then he said, Peace be multiplied unto you. The peace of God has been given to us in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 19 and 20, we're told that God has made peace with us through his cross, the cross of Jesus, that is, and he has reconciled us to himself, reconciled all things unto himself. And then third, he said, love be multiplied unto you. And God has demonstrated his love for us, extended his love to us, and has preserved us in his love in the person of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, Romans 5, 8, Romans, 5, or, or, or Romans 8, 38 and 39. And so Jude writes to those who have been sanctified by the Father, preserved in the Lord Jesus Christ, and called to this redemption with the prayer and desire that all those who know the Lord Jesus will continue to abound. When he speaks of grace or mercy and love and peace being multiplied, what he's saying is that, that the mercy, the peace, and the love of God might abound in their lives, that they might live in the abundance of this mercy, the abundance of this peace, the abundance of this love given by God. And all of this is received, how? By grace. It's, it's unmerited favor that God has shown. And so he says, we, my desire is that you abound in this. That's what he is saying. Now, this next division of the epistle consists of two verses, verses 3 and 4. And within these verses, we find the thesis of Jude's letter stated in verse 3 when he states, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. However, Jude's address in verse 3 consists of more than this thesis statement alone. For in this verse, Jude provided both an explanation as well as an exhortation to the reader. Verse 3, he says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So let's just break this verse down together this evening. First, we find Jude's greeting to the reader. He says, Beloved. Now he's addressing the believers themselves. Now notice he said, I'm writing Jude, a a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And he says, to them that are sanctified by God, preserved in Christ Jesus. Did he not say that? Remember verse 2? 
He's or verse one, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. So he's saying abound in this mercy, peace, and love of God. But then he says beloved. Now he's addressing them literally directly. Now he's already addressed them directly when he says mercy unto you, peace. That's kind of a general statement, the specific meaning. But he's generally saying, oh, I'm writing to those who are sanctified by God the Father, who are preserved in Jesus Christ, who are um, uh, called of God to this redemption. But then he says, mercy unto you, peace and love. So he's given this greeting to them, but he's, in this greeting he's saying, abound in God's mercy, grace, and love by which you are called. But then he deals with them and addresses them directly when he says beloved. Now it's getting personal here. And he says, beloved. Now, the term beloved, as in the case of John's epistle, which we dealt with some weeks back, this term beloved is translated from the Greek word uh, agapitos. And this word is akin to the word agape, of course, as you are aware, which is used to describe God's love or a godly love. And so this is not only a term of endearment, obviously, as we discovered through John's epistle, but it's one which addressed the reader as having been acknowledged to be a fellow recipient of God's love. And so when he says beloved, is he saying, I love you? Well, yes, but he's saying much more than that. Again, he's identifying these, the reader, the recipients of this letter, being those who are abounding in God's uh, mercy, God's peace, and God's love, those who have been sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, and called of God by God. He is saying, beloved, you are the ones who are recipients of God's love as much as I am a recipient of God's love. So he's saying we have this shared fellowship in this love. And so John or Jude is stating that here and even making this one statement, one word, beloved. It is much more than what we often, as I mentioned through our study of John's epistles, that we often tend to read such a statement and, and really not give it the consideration or understand the weight or gravity of what is being stated because we, we again, we refer to each other. I mentioned this through our study of John, that we refer to each other as brother or as a sister and often we do so in just a very casual sense or manner, but we really shouldn't do that. We should consider the truth of what we are stating and that if we call someone a brother, that means that they, we acknowledge them and, and, and understand that they are professing to be a brother in Christ or that they have received the same grace and mercy in Jesus Christ as have we, hence we are brothers in Christ. And so when Again, Jude says beloved, that's the, the connotation here. That, that is what is being stated. And we must recognize that the choice of address is significant in and of itself when he says beloved. However, the gravity of such significance is realized within the following statement made by Jude, in which he referred to the common salvation. Now, the use of the term common that is used here. This, of course, is an adjective. It's modifying salvation, and it refers to that which is shared. The term also refers to that which is ordinary. Now, this is not speaking of salvation as though it is insignificant by any means, but rather that this salvation is ordinary to all of those who possess it. In other words, it is a shared salvation, and it is not specific to any one individual, but remains significant to every individual by whom it is shared. So when he says the common salvation, this means ordinary. But we would never look at salvation and say, oh, salvation is just ordinary. But wait a minute, it is the ordinary salvation commonly shared by all of those who have received it. In other words, let me say it to you like this. There's not one of us 
who can claim, no matter how bad off you were prior to redemption, we cannot say, oh, God has saved us in a greater way than he has saved you. No, salvation is salvation in Jesus Christ. And we all share in this same salvation. And while Paul himself referred to himself as the chief of sinners, and he persecuted the church, and he, he, was, he was bent on destroying the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore Paul says, oh, I, I'm the worst of sinners. I am the very chief of sinners. And we think, oh, what a radical salvation of Paul, how God redeemed him, how God rescued him, how God restored him, how God reconciled him to a relationship with himself. And we would look at that and maybe think that this is some sig- sig- significant, extraordinary salvation. But might I say to you, if you've been born again and redeemed, you share in this common salvation as did Paul. And Paul is no more a brother in the Lord Jesus Christ than any of us who are redeemed are brothers or sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the word common here does not mean insignificant or, or in a casual sense being used as though it, it's just, well, it's just salvation. No, he's saying this ordinary salvation. It is this shared salvation. It is one in which we all who've received Christ have this equal part. <laughs> Think about this for a moment. Let me just stop here for one moment because this is significant. If you are redeemed, Paul could claim no more part of being a family of God than you. And Jude could claim no more part of being part of the family of God than can you. Are, are you see, it's equal part in Christ. We've been made heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So we are all equally those who are born again, of course, I'm referring to. Let me, let me preface. If you've been sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, and called of God, then you equally share in the salvation. No, let, me, let me say to you, and look, I rejoice in this, because who are we, right? Who am I? Who are you? And yet the reality is that no one has a greater part of salvation than do I. No one ever has had a greater part of salvation than do I. And no one has a greater part of salvation than that which you have if you are born again. And and look, this is reason to rejoice. Because we look at ourselves, as did Paul, and we say, oh yeah, I'm I'm, chief of sinners. But we are equally redeemed in Christ. This is a salvation and redemption that that is given to us. It's common in that sense. But yet, as I said... It is shared salvation, but remains significant to every single individual by whom it is shared. So in other words, for those who've received salvation in Jesus Christ, is it not true that when you really reflect on the redemption that has been granted to you, that it would seem like God loves you and you alone, but the the fact is He doesn't love any one of us more than He loves the other because He loves us equally in Christ. And he loves us as he loves his son in his son. In other words, he sees us in his son. So his love has been demonstrated, manifested in and through his son. And we receive that love because of his son. And therefore, we are equally partakers of this love. Jude continued, number two. 
with his explanation to the reader regarding his desire to write the epistle. Let's look at what he says again in verse 3. He says, When I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. Now it's believed by the language Jude, Jude used in this statement that he desired to write to the reader concerning the realities, the benefits, the depths, and the joy of this salvation in which they were all partakers, as I just mentioned. As all those who have been made partakers of this redemptive work of God in Jesus, we all know that there is so much depth to this redemption and also an inexhaustible amount of untapped truth to this eternal redemption that is in Jesus Christ. In Paul's writing to the believers in Rome, for instance, as Paul expounded upon God's wisdom, his mercy, and his grace in redeeming not only the Jews but also the Gentiles, Paul wrote Romans eleven thirty three through 36 Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. What a statement. Now, let me give you some context here. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are parenthetical in nature. Again, Paul does something in the book of Romans in chapters 9, 10, and 11. He does nowhere else in Scripture. He gives these three chapters that are somewhat parenthetical in nature in which he is explaining something. First of all, he explains his tremendous uh, desire and, and this tremendous burden and grief over Israel, his brothers in, 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 in the flesh. And he speaks of his great desire for them to come to faith and how he anguishes over them. But then he also expresses, as well as confidence in God's purpose and plan, regardless of the unbelief and rejection of those of his own. And then he goes on, for instance, in chapter 11, and he then deals with the fact how that God is redeeming these Gentiles and this work of redemption, those that God has called of the Gentiles, not only the Jews, and how that, again, in chapter 11, Paul expounds upon the fact how that the, the natural branches were cut off, which was Israel, that the, uh, that the, the unnatural branches might be grafted in, which is the Gentiles, and how that through that work of grace and mercy of God in bringing the Gentiles into redemption, that he's explaining that the, the Jews then are, are, are caused to be envious of this work of grace which God has, has given and done uh, within the Gentile nations, within the Gentile people. And so he's giving all of this explanation, and this is the statement in verse 33, and concluding this chapter, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. All about this redemptive work concerning especially the Gentiles being brought into the household of faith. And then he says, listen to the next statement he makes. How unsearchable. And the word unsearchable here means unfathomable. It means incapable of being fully explored or understood. He says, how unsearchable, how unfathomable, how incapable of being fully explored or understood are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So here dealing with this specific matter of God's redemptive purpose as it was a purpose throughout the ages, before the ages of time, throughout eternity. And he's speaking of the Gentiles being grafted in, being made a people of God who were not a people of God. And here he says, the depth of the riches of both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable. How unsearchable are his judgments? How, how his ways are past finding out? Who can know his ways? Even though he's explaining this to us, what he's saying is, 
We're seeing this redemptive work and purpose of God, which is eternal, unfolding right before us, Paul is saying. And yet, we cannot begin to comprehend the judgments of God. We cannot begin to comprehend this eternal redemptive work. How unsearchable. Paul then explained to the church at Ephesus these same truths of God's unsearchable riches in Christ, which the church at Ephesus, of course, was a, a Gentile church. In Ephesians 3, 8 through 12, he says, Unto me, Paul, who am, the least, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable, here it means the inscrutable, which is impossible to understand or interpret, incomprehensible, not able to be understood, it's not intelligible, riches of Christ. He's not saying we can have no understanding of this. He's saying this is beyond us to fully understand the riches of Christ, and we will never fully comprehend these riches and the depths of the riches of Christ. And then he says, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he had purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him, by the faithfulness of him. It is no wonder that Jude would have desired to speak of such riches of this salvation to the audience whom he had written. Let me show you where this is tying together. Go back to verse 3. Jude says, Beloved, you who are partakers in this common salvation, you have received the love, the peace, the grace, the mercy of God. You that are sanctified by God the Father, you who are uh, uh, preserved in Jesus Christ, you who are, who are called by God. Beloved, you who are our fellow partakers, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. Here's what Jude is saying. I desired, I with intent wanted to write unto you concerning these unsearchable riches. I wanted to write unto you concerning this, this common salvation, that which gives us common ground, that which makes us one. I wanted to write unto you of the joys of salvation. I wanted to write unto you of the benefits of salvation. Think of Paul for a moment. When he wrote Ephesians, what a joy that must have been for him to write this epistle expounding in tremendous detail of the depths and the riches of God's eternal purpose in Christ, as we read a moment ago. What a joy that must have been to, for Paul to sit down and pen this letter and then send it out to this church, and then for it to be passed on to other churches. And here we are in the, in the 21st century reading portions of Paul's letter to the Ephesians concerning the inexhaustible riches and depths of this redemptive grace, love, and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And we still have not exhausted and expounded to its fullest extent in all of these centuries the riches and depths of this grace, love, and mercy, peace that is abundant in Jesus Christ. So here Jude is saying, it's my desire. This is what I wanted to write unto you about. I intended to write. I gave all diligence. I was intent on writing unto you concerning this common salvation, that which makes us one. And then Paul explains in his epistles somewhat of what I believe Jude wanted to write 
Jude wanted to say some of the things that Paul had said. Maybe expound on it in a different light, a different perspective to some degree. But he desired to write of this common salvation, of how this unity is provided in this salvation. No wonder he wanted to do such when we consider of this grace and love and mercy. In other words, who would not want to get up and only proclaim the depths of the riches that are present? In Jesus. And we should do that. And Jude, no doubt, is even referencing it here. And Paul did that as well in his epistles. Nonetheless, we see that Jude declined to do as he so desired, so that he might write that which was necessary for those to whom he wrote at that particular moment in time. Look at what he says. In third, we find Jude's exhortation to the reader. Let's go back to the beginning. Beloved. When I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, this is what I wanted to do. But then he says, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Despite Jude's great desire to speak of such things as did the Apostle Paul, as we've looked at in in many other passages, Paul did that as well. And Peter did also and others. In this instance, Jude felt it overwhelmingly necessary to turn the attention to the reader to the tremendous necessity to hold true the faith that they had been given and taught. While we will most likely revisit this verse in weeks ahead in an effort to better grasp the gravity of the meaning of that which Jude has written as an exhortation, it is important, I believe, that we first consider the overall significance in the fact that Jude did not do as he desired to do, but rather did as he discerned and perceived to be necessary to do. It is one thing for us to sit and enjoy the truth of the depths of this great salvation as we should. And it is wonderful for us to fellowship in the truth of the unsearchable riches of this eternal redemptive purpose of God, which he has provided for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet it is also necessary that we understand the magnitude of the responsibility that has been given and handed to us in that God has delivered the faith to us as his people and he has made us his stewards of this faith, the faith. We are to contend. We are to defend. We are to declare We are to stand upon this faith. And in order to do so, we must first have an understanding of that which we are to defend. Yet it is not enough to have an understanding alone. We are as well to continue to live in the truth of this faith upon which we have been planted and grounded that we might be more deeply rooted therein. It would appear as though Jude's expressed desire here was to write a letter of fellowship. Yet he rather writes a letter of exhortation, warning, and reminder that God is faithful and due to his faithfulness, we too can be faithful to that, the faith to which he has called us. Remember something I pointed out a moment ago. Jude says in verse 1, sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ. Then in verse 24, in concluding the letter, getting close to the end of the epistle, he states, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. But prior to that, in verses 20 and 21, listen to what Jude said. But ye, beloved, 
building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So Jude is saying, we are confident that we've been preserved in Jesus and that he is able to keep us. If God has preserved us in Christ, God is also able and faithful to keep us in Christ, keep us from falling, and to present us blameless before him with great exceeding joy. But yet then Jude also notes and says, listen, you better beware. And we're going to see the warnings that come up here just following these verses where Jude gives multiple warnings and examples of those warnings of what happened throughout the Old Testament saying you need to be aware that you are to contend for the faith. You are to agonize over the faith. You are to defend the faith. And so Jude is saying here, and this is what I really wanted you to understand this evening as we began this study, that Jude is saying, Oh, beloved, I desired greatly to write of you of this common salvation. I wanted to write similar, I believe, as to that which Paul has written in some of his epistles. However, I find it necessary to exhort you, to charge you, to contend for the faith. And you'll notice that though this faith is the common salvation, we understand that these are connected. In the following verses, he's not writing about the fellowship and the joy of this fellowship. He starts warning them concerning the dangers of not standing and defending and living in this faith in which they've been planted and rooted. And so here he is saying to them, I wanted to write about all this fellowship, and here's what I'm saying to you. It would be wonderful if all we were called to do is just bask in the depths of the riches of the eternal purpose of God in Jesus Christ and just continue to glean and take in and soak in and that's all there is to it. No, but then we must live in that planted firmly upon this foundation of Jesus Christ because what we need to realize is while we are soaking in these truths and learning which we should and, and being rooted and grounded all the more, there is constant opposition against the faith and constant attack to turn us from resting in he who has called us, preserved us, will present us blameless and holy. So Jude gives these warnings and he points out here that this was my intent, this is what I desired, but you know what I find necessary? I need to rather write unto you concerning defending the faith, contending for the faith. To contend for the faith has tremendous implications, and of course, this along with Peter's writings is where we understand uh, what apologetics truly is in our call to apologetics partially, and other verses as well, but specifically in Peter's epistle and as well here in Jude, because we understand that to contend for the faith does not mean to be obnoxious concerning your beliefs. It means that you are to be able to defend being rooted and planted and grounded yourself the truth which you claim to embrace and love and hold to. We're going to look more into this, but let me just conclude with this this evening. We have slowly digressed, I think, if you want to say slowly, within the church today to the point 
that many people will make many claims about what they profess to believe, and yet there are few who are able to explain why or give answers to any opposition that rises up against what their claims may be. And that is sad. I told you what's happened by large today in the church in America And we're not talking about wisdom of men. We're not talking about that. No man can understand spiritual things except the Spirit of God give him discernment to do so. The presence of God's Spirit is the means by which we have spiritual understanding and discernment. So we fully acknowledge and recognize that. But do not conflate that statement with us remaining ignorant concerning our understanding and ability to defend that which we claim we believe. In other words, as I've said too many times in the church in America today specifically, what we have done is we have become excessively, extremely lazy. And because of laziness, you know what we do? We then run to emotions rather than intellectual understanding and discernment and and contending in the faith, if you will. So what we do rather is live by emotion rather than wisdom and understanding. And as I've said to you, one thing that's very dangerous is when the church believes that we are emotional beings or God created us emotional beings and gave us intellect. No, God created us intellectual beings, but he did give us emotion. But you'll find all through Scripture the warnings are given that we are not to allow ourselves to be overrun and overtaken by our emotions. But we are to be of a sound mind. We are to be rooted. We are to be grounded. We are to be sober-minded. And what's happened is laziness has come to the point and gotten to the point within the church that we would rather go by how we feel rather than to commit ourselves to truth and understanding. You can say, boy, I really like to hear about Jesus and all he is and who he is, and that's what we must preach as Christ. And yeah, that'll make you feel really good, but you need to be biblically rooted and grounded in this truth and living in this truth, not just going on a feeling you receive from hearing this truth. It's like people are content in this feeling and this emotion and what they get out of this. Rather than, and, and that's what I find so interesting about Jude's writing here in the beginning of this epistle. He says, hey, I desire to write to you about this common salvation. I desire to write to you about, I believe, the joys and the fellowship and all these things that we could talk about. But here's what's necessary. Earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. You, you need to understand that you are called as a steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that does not mean just learn what everything you can and then sit on it. No, we must stand in this truth, live in this truth, and be ready to give answer to any man that asketh, of that hope that is within us, this confidence that is within us. And so again, this is referred to as apologetics. That's what theologically it's referred to. But Scripture, it comes out of Scripture, where Peter says that specifically, and even Jude talking about contending for the faith. And the word contend here, it, it, it's arguable that, that it goes back even to this agony or agonizing over the faith or in the faith. So he's not talking about fighting in the sense that many would say contend in that regard but rather it's this defense of the faith, understanding. And we must 
understand that God has called us to be stewards of His truth. We are stewards of the faith, and we are to defend it as such. And so Jude says, this is what I wanted to do. This was my intention. I gave all diligence. I was, I was committed to this, but I find it necessary to write unto you to earnestly contend for the faith. And we're going to look more into what that means, but I wanted to show you what Jude says in concerning his desire here and then following in wisdom and discernment what he must do. And how that we need to recognize that as well. Because again, listen what's easy to do. It's easy for us. I mentioned this Sunday morning. It is easy for us to become sponges and just soak up, soak up, soak up, soak up, soak up, soak up, soak up. But that's not what God's called us to do. We are to be rooted and grounded. We are to receive. We are to grow. We are to be rooted and and, and firmly planted. But then we are to bloom and grow in the truth in which we are planted. And, And God will produce through us. And so we need to... We need to recognize that. But again, this is all hinged not on us keeping ourselves. It's interesting. You're preserved in Jesus Christ. He's able to keep you from falling, present you faultless. But in between those two statements, Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. He says, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. See see what's happening here? And what is building up? What's another word for building up? One word? Edify or edification. The building up. This Here's the edification. Building each other up in the faith, in your most holy holy faith. And notice he says, building up yourselves. So this is what we are called to. And I find it interesting how Jude makes this distinction of what he desired to do and then what he was, what he was, what was necessary for him to do in writing this epistle. 